Hey ladies, welcome to the Looking Above podcast. It's easy to get bogged down in details of everyday life. If we aren't intentional, our eyes can easily be pulled away from the Lord and we can set our gaze on things of earth. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. My name is Karen Boffman and I'm the women's pastor at New Life Church in Gillette, Wyoming. I believe that our perspective changes everything. So together, we'll be looking above. Hello there, ladies. Welcome back. It's episode nine of Looking Above. I trust that you are doing well and enjoying our time here in the book of John. We're almost coming to a close. We have this episode and then we'll have one more where we'll finish up the last three chapters of the book. But today we will be looking into John chapter 17 and 18. Uh, this is Jesus's prayer right before uh, he is taken excuse me, taken by the soldiers and goes to be questioned and what's ultimately going to lead to his crucifixion. So these are his final moments here with his disciples as he's praying. And as we go through the uh, these two chapters, what I want you to notice in particular are the number of times that the word give, given, gave, or gift are used. For instance, in the first eight verses alone, I think those words show up nine times. So it just is over and over. As I read this, those words just kept jumping off the page at me. When we read these things and Jesus is talking about his father or speaking to his father and saying, um, glorify your son so he can give glory back to you for you have given him authority he gives eternal life each one you have given him we are learning something of the nature of god here god is a giver and he gives good things so as you read this as you look for those words just learn about god's gracious and generous nature all right so he is about to go to the cross and he says, Father, the hour has come. So this whole time we've been studying this over and over again, Jesus has said, it is not yet time. It is not yet time. It's not time for my glory. And now finally, he says, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. The cross was the completion of Jesus's earthly work. And it shows us that there is no length to which God will not go to show us his love. He is willing to send his son. He is willing to die for us. The only way to glorify God, we see here, he's saying the hour has come, glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. The only way to glorify God is to be obedient to God. And so here is Jesus. His glory is in the cross. His glorification comes through his death. He doesn't say this is this is my death. This is the end. Anything negative, he says glorify your son. So he sees in his obedience even in death, even in this trial that's about to come to him that this is where his glory lies says, for you've given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given to him. This eternal 
Ionios uh, is the Greek word here, is the life of God, and it has to do with a quality of life. So often when we talk about um, accepting Jesus as your Savior or belief in Christ, so often the focus is only on heaven and the afterlife, and we consider that eternal life, this life that'll go on forever. But this word is actually talking about a quality of life, having the life of God in us. And that's what Jesus gives to us. That's what that says there in verse two. So in this section here, Jesus is praying for himself, which I think is interesting because Sometimes we do this, but so often our prayers are always bless so-and-so, take care of so-and-so, all of this. But here he's asking God to help him to do the work that he has to do and to um, for God to be glorified through what he is about to do. He talks about knowing God in verse 3, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you. So to know God is to have an intimate, personal relationship with him, to know what he is like, to have an intimate friendship with him. And this is made possible only through Jesus. In verse 6, he says, I've revealed you to the ones you gave me. He showed men God's nature. He showed us what God is like. He has revealed to us God. So again, as we say, we look through this and we read this and we see Jesus's actions and we hear Jesus's words. We are seeing God act. We are hearing God speak. That's what Jesus did. Here he's talking in verses six through eight. He's talking about the 11, the 11 disciples who are um, staying true to him at this point. Judas has already left to go to betray him. And this is kind of a passing of the mantle. He believes in these 11 very ordinary men to do his work, to continue his work because God chose them. And isn't that such a beautiful thing about this story and about our story is that we are so normal. We are so very human. And yet God chooses to use us in spite of our foibles and our flaws and our downfalls. He chooses to use us anyway. He knows we're going to mess up sometimes. As we're going to see here later in chapter 18, he knows that Peter is going to deny him when he's saying this. But he's saying they know everything. Verse 7 that I have is a gift from you, for I have passed on to them the message you gave me. He's passed this on to these men who he knows are going to fail, but he believes in them and he sees their potential. And I love that. And I think that speaks to us. God sees your potential. He sees who you can be. He created you on purpose for a purpose with a mission and a task to complete for him. And he believes in you to accomplish it. Moving on to verse 9, my prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, for his disciples, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. 
God moves our hearts, this whole concept of being given. God moves in our hearts to respond, but we still have the choice of how to respond. So the Holy Spirit is calling us and drawing us to God. We choose how we respond. Verse 10, so they bring me glory. His disciples bring him glory. So just as a student might bring glory to their teacher. So for instance, when I was in high school, I had a math teacher who taught me calculus. I did not enjoy calculus at all. I took AP calculus because I thought this is a great opportunity to get out of some math classes in college. I can be done with math after high school. And um, in that class, I received a B, which at that point in time, I did not feel good about. I was an A student and um, I was valedictorian at that point. And I did not feel good about um, getting a B and dropping to salutatorian. But when I took my AP calculus test, I got a five on the exam, which is the highest score you can get. I did not know calculus well, I didn't think. But Carl had prepared me for that test. He graded hard, so hard in his class because he wanted us to succeed on the test. And when I got that five on the test, it wasn't me who got the glory. It was him who received the glory. He was the teacher who had prepared me for the task. And when I rose to the occasion, it showed that he had done good work as his teacher. And so here we see that same kind of concept here that Jesus is saying these disciples, I've taught them everything they need to know, and now they're going to go and live it. They're going to go and get a five on their AP exam, and it's going to bring me glory because they're going to show off everything I've taught them, and they're going to succeed. As he moves on here, Jesus prays, um, prays for his disciples. He says in verse 11, now protect them by the power of your name so they will be united just as we are. Protect them by the power of your name. And again, in verse 15, he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. He prays for protection by the power of God's name. He's asking God to provide safety from the evil one. So the power of God is going to protect us and the other disciples. He's speaking specifically here about his disciples. But the power of God protects us from Satan's attack. So my question is, why do we struggle and fall so often? If Jesus himself is praying for us to be protected by God's power from Satan's attack, why do we struggle and why do we fall to sin and temptation so frequently? And I think the answer is because we do life on our own strength instead of in his. If we rely and live fully dependent on his power, we don't fall and we don't fail as often. It's those moments when we look around and we let the gleam of the sparkly sin lure us out of the fold, the sheepfold. Remember back when we talked about John verse uh, John chapter 10 when we talked about the thief coming over 
into the sheepfold and trying to lure us out of the fold, out of the protection. We allow ourselves to be lured away from the safety and the protection of God's power when we start to live on our own and in our own strength. He prays, um, let's see here, for unity for them in verse 11. Protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. So just as Jesus and God are united, he prays that his disciples will be united. How are Jesus and God united? They are united perfectly. There is no competition between them. There is no exclusiveness. There are no divisions. And that's what he longs for for his disciples. And this is where we so often fail as the church, as the body of Jesus. We are not representing Jesus well in our divisions. And we're going to talk a little bit more about unity in our differences in just a moment. But when we allow our differences to cause division, we're not living unified in the way that Jesus and God are. In verse 17, well, let's, I'm jumping a little bit here. Verse 13, just want to note here, it says, I'm coming to you. Now I'm coming to you. Jesus is going to the Father. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. Jesus's teachings bring us joy. He says, I have given them your word. There's the word given again. The word of God is a gift. So often we get daunted by it, right? Reading the Bible seems hard or we don't understand and it doesn't feel like a gift. Sometimes it feels like a chore or something we have to check off of our to-do list. We need to train ourselves to have that mindset that this is a gift. We have the very word of an almighty, holy God. We get to interact with that. His word can change our lives, can um, transform our lives. Jesus then warns them in verse 14 that Christ's followers are going to look different and the world may hate us. They're not going to understand us. They might ridicule us and poke fun at us and talk about us. Um, It's because they don't understand us. Verse 15, we already talked about this safety here that he's talking about keeping us safe from the evil one. He doesn't pray for an escape from suffering. He doesn't say, keep them from suffering. He even flat out says, I'm not asking you to take them out of this world. He knows that in this world, we will have struggle. He doesn't ask his father to take us out of the world, but to keep us safe. He wants to give us protection and victory. So Christianity does not release us from our problems. Our desire should not be to abandon the world, but our desire should be to live victoriously in the world, to show the world Jesus's power, which gives us victory. All right, now we'll get to verse 17. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. He prays for us to be made holy. The Greek word here is hagios, which means set apart for a special task. He's praying that we would be equipped with the qualities of mind and heart and character which are necessary for that task. So God chooses us. Remember, he gave the disciples to Jesus. He sets us apart. He makes us holy. And he equips 
us, teaching us the word, which is truth. He equips us, gives us what we need so that we can be loving and obedient, so that we can do what we have been called to do. And then in verse 19, I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them. That's Jesus's work on the cross. He gave the ultimate gift. He gave himself as a sacrifice for us so that we can be viewed as holy in God's eyes. Moving on, verse 20, we start a section here where Jesus is praying for all believers. This is where his prayer moves on looking forward to the future of the church. And that's what he says. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Not that the previous words did not apply to us, but these here, then we pay specific attention to. He says, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, and you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. He prays for unity in relationship. Now, I told you we were going to talk again about how we can be unified in our differences. Our churches will not look the same. We won't all worship the same way. We won't even all believe exactly the same things. But we can still be unified in our love of each other and our love of God. And that unity, we use that unity, again, to show the world that we are his disciples. It says that they may be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Our unity as a church shows the world who Jesus is and that he is who he claimed to be. So our disunity is actually speaking volumes to the world. And it is no wonder that the world doesn't believe in Jesus when the church, church people don't love each other and aren't unified in their love of God. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. There again, unity. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as me. So the purpose, again, of unity is so the world will believe. The church is either the hope of the world or the church is the enemy of the world. Our unity is either bringing others to him or our disunity is driving people away. He says this again and again, and I think we're wise to pay attention. When Jesus repeats something, it means it's important. We are either drawing men to him or we're pushing them away. And it's so often our disunity, the way that we talk about each other, the way that our churches break up, the way that people leave churches, the way they talk about each other when they leave churches, all of this is causing people to not believe in Jesus. And it's so sad. It's so sad. Verse 24, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Jesus's glory was the cross. So when life is hard, an attitude of looking above is to not look at the hard and think, 
this is my struggle, this is my suffering, this is terrible, woe is me, pity me, I'm so miserable. But instead, to think of it as our glory. When life is hard, when we are going through struggle, to think of this as our glory, like Jesus considered the cross his glory. Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father. The greater the obedience, the greater the glory. So we learn from that. We need to be obedient to the nth degree. When God calls us to something, when we read something in Scripture and we understand it, we need to obey it. The greater our obedience, the greater our glory. And men saw God in Jesus. When others see God in us, that is our glory. We share in the cross and we share in the glory of heaven. God calls us not just to the suffering, but also to the glory. So when others see God in us, we are also glorifying God, but also gaining glory ourselves. Let's move on to John chapter 18. This is where it gets really, really hard because Jesus is being um, arrested here in this next section. So the section starts here in verse eight, in chapter 18, verse 1. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered into a grove of olive trees. As I was studying this, I um, learned something that I did not know before, and I think this is so interesting. But the Kidron Valley had a brook that ran down through the valley. And this time, right when um, Jesus is going to be crucified here, right, it was the Passover. <clears throat> we know that at the Last Supper, they were there, you know, to celebrate the Passover together. So during the Passover, um, there were thousands of lambs killed in the temple. People brought these lambs at Passover to be killed, and then their blood was poured on the altar. This was a sacrifice for their sins, right? This was the reminder of the Passover and when the people had been freed from their slavery in Egypt. So the temple altar, there was a channel that led from the temple and drained the blood away from the temple, of course, just having thousands of blood's lamb in the temple would be extremely unsanitary. So there was this channel that took the blood and took it away from the temple, and it actually led down to the Kidron Brook, to this brook that was going through the Kidron Valley. So when this passage says that Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron Valley, that means they crossed this brook that would have been blood red with the blood of thousands of lambs that had been sacrificed as Jesus is on his way to become the final sacrifice. Can you imagine that visual for him? He knows where he is headed. He knows that his blood is going to be what makes us pure and spotless and holy in his Father's eyes. And he's crossing this river that is just flowing red with blood. Jesus goes to the olive trees. Judas knew that this is where he would be because they've been there many times before. It says in verse 3, the leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas, get this, a contingent of Roman soldiers and 
temple guards to accompany him. So the temple guards are the temple police. So Judas is coming with a group of police with him. But not just that. He's coming with what it says is a contingent of Roman soldiers. The word for contingent here is spera, spera. I'm probably saying it wrong. But it has probably three different definitions um, in this time period that would have meant, depending on which one of those definitions is the actual one, anywhere from 200 to 600 to 1,000 Roman soldiers. So somewhere between 200 and 1,000 Roman soldiers plus this group of police come to arrest Jesus. That is a tremendous amount of force coming at an unarmed teacher. And that tells you a little bit about how the leading priests and Pharisees felt about Jesus. They were so threatened by him. And they had to have known that they were going against a God-man to think that they needed to send that type of force. Jesus, verse 4, fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. He has courage in the face of hundreds of soldiers and the police. He just steps right out. He doesn't hide from them. And he confronts them and asks them who they're looking for. Of course, they're looking for him. I am he, Jesus said. As Jesus said, I am he, verse 6, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Have you noticed that little detail before? They all drew back and fell to the ground when he said, I am he. I am. Do we remember those words in the Old Testament when God is asked who he is and he says, I am God is speaking here, and the authority of the word causes hundreds of armed men to fall to the ground. Wow, that is so powerful, so very powerful. And again, he asked them, who are you looking for? And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you, I am he, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. He chose to die for us. He hands himself over. This is God right here, right? He could have struck this entire contingent of army men and police officers dead. He could have wiped them out. He could have called a whole host of heaven's armies to come and fight on his behalf. But he doesn't go down with the fight. He hands himself over. He willingly goes towards his death out of his love for us. And out of his love for his friends, his protectiveness of them is to say, let these others go. He doesn't want his friends to get drug into what he knows he is about to do. So he protects them. Verse 9, it says he did this to fulfill his own statement. So he has prophesied before of what's going to happen. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. And he makes sure that that prophecy is going to come true. Then Simon Peter drew his sword and slashed off the ear of Malchus. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? Again, amazing obedience 
to his father and what his father has called him to do. So the soldiers and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. Again, unnecessary force (laughs) for an unarmed teacher who has just handed himself over to you. They tie him up and it says that they take him first to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. So they take him to Annas. Now, Annas is one of the ruling leaders here. He is one of the priests. And this guy has a massive ego trip. He has way too much power. And power corrupts. We know this, right? With power comes pride. And with pride comes corruption. And Annas is one of the most prideful and corrupt characters we run into in the word. So I want to give you just a little bit of background into who he is. These are things that we read about in history. But I want you to um, think about the temple. And when people came to the temple, they came to um, do sacrifices often, right? Sacrifices for their sins or whatever it was, all these different rules and laws that they followed. And outside of the temple, you could buy animals, doves or pigeons or whatever you needed, a lamb, whatever you needed for sacrifice. But inside of the temple, you know, they had set up these booths where they were selling animals for a sacrifice. And we remember um, this, we know this from the interaction where Jesus is turning over tables and letting these animals go free. The reason that he did that, obviously, is he said in John chapter 2, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. He did not like the desecration of his father's house, and he did not like the way that they were doing what they were doing because those who were selling these animals inside the temple were doing it at a ridiculously inflated rate. They were taking advantage of people who had come to do their religious practices, to offer these sacrifices. It was exploiting worshipers for profit. And guess what? That area of the temple is where the shops were set up and these animals were being sold at highly inflated prices. It was called the Bazaar of Annas. Annas and his family members were the orchestrators, and they were the ones who were profiting from this crazy sale of animals going on in the temple courts. So when Jesus came in there and he overturned the tables and he set these animals free, Jesus had upset this corrupt, powerful man. And Annas was looking to gloat and to lord it over Jesus that he was on his way to his death, that we've got you now. We've sent our guard out and we have caught you and you are tied up. There was no reason for Jesus to be brought to Annas in this instance other than this prideful, powerful man just wanted to rub it in Jesus's face that he was winning. I'm going to jump here over this next little section and move on here to verse 19 because I want to continue this uh, bit with Annas and then we'll move back. But it says, inside the, high, inside the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching. So Annas starts questioning Jesus. Jesus replied, everyone knows what I teached. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. In Jewish law, 
a prisoner must not be asked a question by which answering he would admit guilt. This was the law. And so Annas was breaking Jewish law. And Jesus is reminding him of this in verse 21. Why are you asking me this question? You shouldn't be asking me. You need to ask witnesses, not me, the one that you are accusing. Verse 22, one of the temple guards slapped Jesus. Is that any way to answer the high priest? Jesus said, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking truth, why are you beating me? There was no hope of justice or a fair trial. They were okay with breaking their own law at this point if it meant taking Jesus down. They had lost all common sense. They were no longer adhering to their law and these priests and the Pharisees, they were the ones who were all about the law. They were enforcing it all the time. They were so scared of Jesus and so threatened by who he was and by his power and by his following that they just lost all sense. And so it says verse 24, then they bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. It's just absolutely ridiculous how they're treating Jesus and how they're just doing nothing that makes any sense whatsoever. All right, I want to skip back to verse 15, where we see Peter's first denial of Jesus. So Simon followed Jesus. The other disciples at this point have all left. They've all deserted, deserted Jesus. He's the one that stays and watches what's going to shake down Peter, and we believe it would be John. It says, as did another disciple, that other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Um, tradition would have it, scholars who have studied this believe that that other disciple was Jesus. It is believed that the reason that he knew this high priest and had access to him is from his days as a fisherman, working in his father's fish business and delivering fish to this home. And they know him and they trust him. At this point, all the other disciples have fled. But here we see Peter. And I want to mention this because Peter is about to deny Jesus. He's talking to a woman, verse 17, and the woman says, you're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I'm not. He did deny Jesus. Yes, he did. But the other disciples weren't even there. They had already left. They had already run. Peter's heart was to be with Jesus. His heart was to be there. He had just drawn his sword in defense of Jesus. He followed Jesus to this place. But here he is in a moment of weakness, a moment of stress, and yes, he denies Jesus. So often people want to focus on Peter's failure here. But Peter, Peter's success is that he had defended his Lord, that he had followed his Lord, that he was there out of his love for his Lord. Jumping down to verse 25, meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire warming himself, they again asked him, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. No, I'm not. But one of the household slaves, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? And Peter denied it. Now, tradition says in some history says that um, people used to crow like a rooster 
when Peter walked by, because it says, again, Peter denied it, immediately a rooster crowed. And of course, Jesus had predicted that before the rooster crowed, you would deny me three times. And so some accounts say that people would crow like a rooster when Peter walked by. And there are people in this life who will look at our mistakes and our failures and our moments of weakness, which I believe this was for Peter, and they will want to throw it in our faces, right? And there are also times when we let our past or our mistakes or our shortcomings or a diagnosis, whatever, to define us. We let our weakness define us. But that's not how Jesus sees us. Jesus sees beyond that. He sees to our potential like we saw at the beginning of this when he was praying for his disciples. He saw Peter's potential, even though he knew what Peter was going to do, what Peter's denial was not what defined him. Peter saw Jesus, I mean, Jesus saw Peter, excuse me, as Cephas, as the rock on which he would build his church. He saw his potential and he called that out in him. And then Jesus is taken before Pilate. His trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours in the morning. He was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside, all of this. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them, asked them what their charge was. This exchange goes on. Roman law allowed the Jews to have a lot of jurisdiction over themselves, over their own people. But the one thing that they weren't allowed to do was impose the death penalty. And the pride of these evil men, these Pharisees and teachers of the law and um, priests, their pride had caused them to have such an intense hatred of Jesus that they were acting like madmen. They wanted him to die. They felt like this was the only way to end the threat to their power that they felt Jesus was. And so they came to use Pilate to accomplish their goal. They weren't allowed to put Jesus to death themselves. So they took him to Pilate to accomplish their goal, and they were going to use him. Now, Pilate and the Jews had a rather troubled past. <laughs> Pilate was not a good governor, and time and again, he had failed them. And the Jews didn't really like him. In fact, they were pretty angry with him. It got to the point that there was one time when they reported him to Tiberius, and Pilate had gotten in trouble and, um, you know, was made to do something by his boss because he hadn't been doing the right things and the Jews reported him. So at this point, um, they know the power that they have over him and that they can blackmail him into doing things because all they need to do again is complain and he's probably going to lose his office because they've already reported him in the past. So they're here to literally use this man as a puppet in their own play. Verse 31, take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. He is trying to evade the responsibility. He does not want to be responsible for Jesus' death. But it doesn't happen. They know that they can't do that. They're going to use him. And so he's going to have to die a Roman death, not a Jewish death. Um, the Jews would stone people to death and... Romans would crucify them. Verse 32, it says, this fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die 
in John 12, 32, he had said that he would be, Jesus said he would be lifted up as in on a cross. That's how he would die. Pilate's trying to get out of it. It's not working the way he wants. The Jews are extremely powerful and they're holding this over his head. And so he takes Jesus inside to question him. And this goes back and forth. And in this whole discussion back and forth, we just continue to see the pride of Pilate. He talks to them, he talks to Jesus, and Jesus responds. In verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is in the heavenly realm, and his kingdom is in the hearts of men. And his kingdom is a loving kingdom. And this is why his followers are not fighting at this point because they follow a different law, the law of love. Jesus goes on and he says, I came into this world. This is his purpose to testify to the truth. He came to tell men the truth. Pilate's scratching his head by this point. He's so perplexed. He doesn't understand why men want to kill Jesus. He has not found any guilt in him. He's not guilty of any crime, he says in verse 38. Pilate does not want to take responsibility for his death, but his hands are tied. He wants to release him. And so he even offers them at Passover each year, he releases one prisoner and he wants to release Jesus. And they say, no, not him. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a terrible, terrible man. And they're saying, release this terrible man and crucify Jesus. And we'll move on to that as we move into the next chapter, the next time we talk together. But I want to pause for just a moment before we end. I know we've gone a little longer today, um, but I just, oh, there's so much good history in here that we needed to talk about. I want to talk for just a moment about looking around versus looking above. We see the priests in this story. We see Pilate in this story. And these individuals are prone to looking around. Their only interest was self-preservation and self-glorification. And when we are worried about self, when we are interested in taking care of self, when we are interested in glorifying self, we will be looking around. But then there's Jesus, the other character in this story, who is looking above. And his only interest was love shown in obedience. And so as we think back through this whole passage and how many times the words give and gave and gift were used, Jesus gave himself because he was looking above and did what his father called him to do. He acted in obedience and love for us and gave us the gift of salvation, the gift of holiness, the gift of himself. So, I'm recording this on the first day of December. And in this month, as we go through and we head towards our celebration of Christmas and Jesus's birth, we can't think of his birth without thinking of his death. God sent him to the world. He gave him as a gift to us so that he would be the ultimate gift in his death. As you go through this month, give of yourself, die to yourself, love on others extravagantly, give big of yourself and love others the way Jesus loved you.